You know, one of the oldest uh, uh, patterns of prayer in Christian history, so I'm talking about since the time uh, of Jesus, uh, goes like this. Actually, I just prayed it. Three words. Come, Lord Jesus. And you can actually see reference to, to that in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians and in Revelation, come Lord Jesus. And also in an ancient, a very early Christian document called the Didache or Didache, however you'd like to pronounce that, was an instruction manual about things like how to pray. Now the come Lord Jesus prayer has never been considered magical in the genie in a lamp way, but it has always been considered throughout history and even in its use up to this, to this day to be to be a prayer that when it is prayed, uh, something extraordinary happens. Or you should, you should pray it expecting the supernatural, expect, expecting the extraordinary. Expecting that Jesus would come, would show up, would be present, and that things would happen. Much has actually happened when Jesus physically came and lived life on this earth for a little while with us. And extraordinary things happened. Demons were banned out of people's bodies. Uh, sick people were healed. Were left speechless. Tables were turned over, both literally and in terms of social customs, where Jesus would spend time. Um, you know, he ate and he walked alongside, and he was interested in people that most others in society would pay no attention to. So Jesus showed up. He actually showed up in history, and unexpected things happened. Things that could not always be comprehended, and things that were definitely beyond human control. That's the sense of that prayer. Come. Lord Jesus. Uh, Derek Wilson, the, the chair of our board, he prays it often and adds, come, Holy Spirit, come. Simple prayer. It's really a, an invoking prayer, a prayer of invocation, calling on the name. Okay, so one of the contemporary criticisms of the Bible is that it tells stories of Jesus showing up and extraordinary and incomprehensible things actually happening. You know, things to do with the supernatural, miracles. That's one of the, you know, the modern-day criticisms of the Bible, that it, it talks about miracles and supernatural things like they can be real. And uh, the argument goes something like this. Um, Brian Harris, actually, I've been plugging this book a little bit, Why Christianity is Probably True. He has a little conversation in this book which outlines how this, this argument, uh, this conversation might often go with someone. Two people in a conversation. And uh, one says... Uh, something, so something extraordinary has happened, and one says, well, clearly that didn't happen. And the other says, well, why not? Because if it did, it would be a miracle, says the first person. What's the problem with that? Well, miracles don't happen. Well, this one did. Didn't you hear the account? It can't possibly be true, because miracles don't happen. And Brian Harris makes the point that that's not a conversation uh, that people have about actual evidence. It's a conversation that reflects a person's firmly held beliefs that miracles are impossible and there's an unwillingness to step into that space and go, well, that, that was weird. I can't explain that. What is going on there? I like the way that he, he outlines that. Now, I do just want to stop and say that that said, the fact that we might open the door to the possibility of miracles and the supernatural, I think we need to say miracles are certainly extraordinary <laughs> and surprising. And I think it's probably true to say that miracles are not the everyday norm in the, you know, some would say oh, it's the miracle of drawing breath, of waking up in the morning, but I'm talking about the others that are more discreetly miracles. And I think it's true to say that it's not helpful or wise for us to see everything in spiritual terms to the point of dismissing the physical. You know, it's not helpful to look for demons in every corner. 
it's not, um, it's not at all helpful to blame every bad thing on supernatural forces, and it's not right to incite people to fear and paranoia by making everything about the spiritual world as if the choices that you and I have actually made don't have consequences in, in the way is experienced. You understand what I'm saying there? But I also want to say that I think, also without a doubt, there are times when we simply cannot explain something and we are forced, if we are actually going to be rational and open, we are forced to consider that a miracle or something distinctly supernatural has happened. And perhaps the most telling demonstration of this is in the resurrection of Jesus. And I just want to read you one paragraph uh, from Brian's book. He says, those who flatly deny that the resurrection took place quickly find themselves on the back foot. Here are some of the rapid-fire questions they have to answer. So someone who says that can't possibly be true because it would be a miracle and miracles don't happen. So Brian says, questions we can ask. So if the resurrection did not take place, what happened to the body of Jesus? Why wasn't it found? That's one. Why do so many people in history have claimed to see the resurrected Jesus. That's attested to not just by the Bible, but by other histories. The disciples, third point, died, as in were killed, they were executed, for their insistence that Jesus rose from the dead. They claimed they encountered the risen Christ. If they knew they were lying, why didn't at least some of them, or in fact, why not all of them, change their story when they realised it was going to cost them their lives? One thing to declare that, but when you see all the people around you being killed, you're going to perhaps do something about that. <laughs> That's okay. Sound troubles. And the next one, how do you explain the dramatic change in the disciples after the claim of the resurrection of Jesus? It seems clear that something extraordinary had happened, so if it wasn't the resurrection, what was it? Or, Brian says, we could put that last point a little differently. We know the disciples went on to change the world. That much is history. You don't need to read the Bible to know that that is true. And if it wasn't the resurrection that motivated them, what was it that inspired a small group of fishermen to transform the world? Hmm. I wanted to start with that because this week we're going to read an extraordinary story recorded in the New Testament of the Bible. I think it is extraordinary and actually a very uncomfortable story, something that seems very unlikely and yet here we have it. It's about calling on the name of God and it's about God turning up in an unexpected way beyond the comprehension and beyond the control of the people who were involved in the story and watched the story play out. It actually takes place not long into the time that um, after Jesus had called that special 12, <laughs> the people that were going to travel with him most closely and learn from him most intimately. So it wasn't long into their, their journey with Jesus, the, the 12 disciples. And this story uh, unfolded. You can read it in Mark 5, or I'll read it to you from Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 1. So they arrived at the other side of the lake, in the region of, Geres of the Gerasenes. You might have some uh, different towns mentioned there because the people who've translated Mark haven't been able to agree on exactly what town it was. But you get the idea, it's all roughly in the same vicinity. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil or unclean spirit came out of the tombs to meet him. 
This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to him, ran to meet him and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane and they were all afraid. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns or the Decapolis of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. It's a big story, isn't it? <laughs> big story. Okay, I want to think just about the disciples for a moment. They had started, as I said, not long ago on this unknown and I'm sure quite uh, in their minds exciting adventure. You know how you feel when there's a new, a new venture on the go and you're just stepping into it? I'm sure they were feeling pretty excited about that. But not long into their time with Jesus, things that were pretty un incomprehensible and unlikely and certainly unexpected and beyond their control started to happen. So, I mean, even start with the simple thing of they, they, they were already um, had had to greet and deal with huge crowds. Whoa, these were simple fishermen. There was that to start with. But then they had these strange stories from Jesus that they really didn't understand but felt like they should. And then here in this circumstance, they've had an incredible day and Jesus says to them, we're getting into that boat, we're going across the lake and we're going to a place where actually the disciples would never normally have gone to, into a region they wouldn't have gone to. They were, where they were headed was not into Jewish territory. The pigs are a major clue there, right? <laughs> pigs are unclean and Jews wouldn't have kept them in the Jewish faith, they wouldn't have kept them. And then, of course, if you read back a little bit prior to the story I read you, they had a wild storm and then the experience of Jesus calming it, 
that they had to get through the night with that before they actually get to land on the other side of the lake. That's big stuff. They do make it across the water, though. <laughs> and I, it doesn't tell us, but I imagine them, you know, just a little bit overwhelmed, tired, been a big night, bewildered. And now they step onto the shore and they are confronted by a very scary human being who has also come out to them from burial caves. That is creepy. And for the Jews, another unclean thing. If you happen to go into a graveyard, there was a whole pile of ritual cleansing that you'd need to go through. So they've got that going on as well. And then on top of this ritual uncleanliness, the man himself was dirty. Think about it. He was wearing filthy, disheveled scraps of clothing. He would have smelt like bodies do when they're not cleaned properly and regularly. It doesn't say that in the text, but you, you look at that story there, you fill in the Fill in the gaps for ourselves. We need to do that. And he was covered in blood and cuts and scratches, some of them new, some of them old, but all of them clearly self-administered. And that is confronting. That's confronting. And then, it doesn't stop there, this man had superhuman strength and he could break chains and shackles like the Hulk, which must have been very alarming, even though they didn't know about the Hulk. I mean, the Hulk is great in a superhero movie, right? But you don't want to meet him on a mission trip. They got across this land to do a good thing and there's this guy able to break shackles and chains. This is alarming. And then the sound of the man, he howled and he shrieked. And the noise would have been an assault on their ears. In fact, I think the whole experience would have been a violent assault on their senses, on their Jewish faith, whole part of the ritual uncleanliness stuff there. And I wonder if it was a bit of an assault on their earlier conviction that following this Jesus guy was a great idea. <laughs> Doesn't say that, but I wonder. They were humans like you and I. I would have been wondering that right then. Okay, that's the disciples. Let's think about the man. He was demon-possessed. He was the victim of malicious forces that, hard to believe or not, do sometimes get a grip on human beings. Tom Wright, Bishop Tom Wright, uh, you know, one of my favourite uh, commentators, he says that this sort of demon possession is especially likely, and when you look back through history, I think you can see it's true, where certain people are living oppressed by other people. Isn't that interesting? So when there's physical, economical, uh, relationship type oppression, that's often a place where you would see this spiritual um, oppression as well. And of course, you know, uh, this oppression had been the experience of the people for more than 100 years before this story happened because of the Romans. Legions of Roman soldiers had moved across the land and they had crushed whoever and whatever had been in their way. And most people at the time of Jesus experienced life under the Romans as something that was unmanageably difficult and overwhelmingly unjust. So that physically was the situation here. The demons possessing the man are called legion. Legion like the Romans, crushing, destroying and dehumanizing. Now, at some point in this story, although we don't actually get to see it directly, Jesus had spoken with the authority of God, commanding Legion to come out of the man. Jesus had invoked the presence and power of God, and this prayer brought the demon-possessed man to the feet of Jesus. And Legion starts bargaining for the lives of the countless spirits that were that were inside this man. He starts bargaining. And it actually reads as if Jesus is 
willingly, you know, happily stepping into the negotiating. (laughs) But, of course, you read on in the story, and the legion-like force of evil inside the man, you see, is broken up into the pigs who stampede into the water, and they, the demons and the pigs, are destroyed. Sounding fairly unlikely or improbable or highly extraordinary? (laughs) It ought to. (laughs) It ought to, and that's okay. You know, in the way this story plays out, I think there are connections being made between spiritual oppression and physical oppression in three ways. Clearly, it's played out in the story of that individual man. He was spiritually oppressed and that played out in how he physically experienced his life. I think, I think it's being alluded to in terms of the oppression of the people under the Romans, legions of Roman soldiers, the, the, the spirit was called legion. But I think if we helicopter up higher... Jesus is actually making a connection between the spiritual presence of evil and his own still-to-come physical torture and death on a Roman cross. A time was coming, Jesus knew, only Jesus in this moment, but a time was coming when Jesus knew he would be naked, dressed in rags, abandoned, considered a lunatic by many, including his own family. What are you doing, Jesus? Time was coming when his own flesh would be torn and his whole being ravaged by evil, when death would claim him. Or so it would seem. But just as the demons were destroyed in the drowned pigs, we get to know the end of the story, don't we? Jesus will destroy evil by defeating death, liberating from oppression not just one man. Not just the people who were oppressed by the Romans, not just one people group, but all humankind and ultimately all of human, human, um, all of creation. Can you see that progression? One man liberated, a people liberated from the, the oppression of the Romans, all humanity and all of creation liberated in Jesus. Now, like I say, at the time, only Jesus would have known that connection. You can't expect the disciples or any of the people uh, involved in it to have been aware of that bigger picture story. They got the opportunity later to join the dots, but it, it was there. We can see it. We get that opportunity. Okay, so the people wouldn't have been thinking, ah, this is a sign of what's to come. But what were they thinking? We don't actually get to hear much about uh, how the disciples reacted in the moment. And again, I I imagine them, um, I'm not trying to pick on them in this place. I'm just thinking of myself, I guess, in this space. Dumbstruck, (laughs) uh, overawed, really going through their heads of what the heck is happening here? What have I said yes to? What is this about? Well, we don't know. We're not told much about them. But the people of the town? Well, this is so interesting, seeing how the people of the town respond. The possessed man had been literally a nightmare for that community. But you see, they'd figured out how to live with him, how to live with it. They kept him in the graveyard, where nobody particularly wanted to go to. And, you know, from time to time they chained him up. They knew it wasn't going to hold, but... Don't we all do that? You know, we know this isn't going to work, but it makes us feel like we're doing something. And every now and again, when it got really out of control, they'd chain him up again and it would hold him maybe for a little while and they'd have that sense of being in control of the situation. But mainly they just warned their kids not to go near him and they shut their ears to his howling and they got on with tending their pigs and living their lives. It was awful, but they were managing it. And it was predictable, and it was recognisable, and no doubt 
made some strange sense to them in that rather terrible way that awful things can actually sometimes end up seeming okay to us simply because it's just the way it is and because somewhere along the line we get um, overwhelmed with the sense of there's nothing we can do about it. You know, have a think about that for a minute. I think we do that, I do that. Sometimes I can let awful things go unchallenged, untested because it's just the way it is. And anyway, what can I do about that? What can I do about that? But then Jesus turns up and he heals the man, which first of all is just not possible, okay? <laughs> Except he did. And then he destroys all of their livelihood as well. That was probably not one man's uh, or household's herd of pigs. It would have been the pigs of the whole town, all, all drowned in the lake. So Jesus turned up and the impossible happened. And here's the thing. The people seem to have been more frightened by that man when he was sane and rational and healed than they were by him when he was demon-possessed. That unsettled them more. The healed, sane, whole, unoppressed man. And they begged Jesus to leave. Wow. I think the tragedy here is twofold, related but twofold. First, there is the way in which the people had gotten used to evil and they become complacent or immune to the real injustice, which was the terrible spiritual and physical oppression of this man. Maybe some did, I don't know. Did anyone take food to him? Were there any attempts to do more than chain him up every now and again when he got out of control? And again, I'm not judging. Um, I'm talking about us. I'm talking about the condition of humankind. How would we have been? Probably very similar, but... uh, they, 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 that, that's the first tragedy, I think. They'd gotten used to the evil or, or didn't, didn't see the evil or the oppression as a problem, more the outworking of it in this man as something that they had to manage. They weren't outraged by the man's plight other than when it impacted them. And I think I can say that quite confidently because of the way they reacted when he was healed. They didn't celebrate. I don't think they were outraged by his plight and so therefore they didn't celebrate when he was healed. And the second thing, the second tragedy here related is what one commentator I read talked about as the way the people whittled evil down to their own size, as if evil was something they could overcome or manage or contain. So first first one was that they weren't affronted by the evil. The second one which is related is that they had whittled evil down to something uh, their own size, something that they could manage, they could contain. And I, I don't think that's unique to those people. I think that's something that will inevitably happen to all of us if we take the supernatural out of evil and for that matter if we take the supernatural out of good. I think it's one of the biggest issues with not being able to say, I don't understand this, it doesn't seem right, I couldn't do it, I can't control it, but it must be supernatural miracle. We take the supernatural out of evil, we take the supernatural out of good, and it makes good and evil something I can be the boss of, I can control, I can set right, or at the very least I can manage. And I think 
it's not right to make injustice and impression and oppression something that we human beings alone can address if we choose to. I think we should work hard against injustice and oppression, but it's not something you and I can fix if we just if we all gave up our day jobs and somebody gave us a huge amount of money and we set to to rid per, rid the city of Perth of, of oppression and injustice. That would be really awesome in some ways, but what I'm saying is it, it it's not enough. It's not just about you and I doing the best we can in that space. We need that beyond ourselves supernatural help. I found this quite sobering as I've prepared it this week. Um, challenging. All right, so that's the people of the town. What about the man who was healed? What was he thinking? He wanted to stay with Jesus, the, the story tells us, but Jesus says to him, no. Go back to your family. And I love that. I think that's a beautiful graciousness and relational thing about Jesus. That this guy, who knows, we don't know how long. But clearly, uh, you know, he, he probably had family in the town. What was life like for them? And Jesus says, no, don't come with me. Go back to your family. Imagine the reunion that that would have been. And then um, this, this guy goes on to become basically the first missionary to the Gentiles. He, he becomes a missionary to the Greeks, telling them not just about the miracle that changed his life, but telling them the significance of the miracle. That's the instruction Jesus gives to him. He says to him, tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So tell them, in other words, Jesus healed you and tell them that happened not because of anything a person did or anything you can really understand or control or, or explain, but that happened because God was at work. Tell them what happened, I'm better. And tell them it happened because God was at work. I think in this unlikely story, we can see the pattern of prayer as this invocation, this calling on the name of God, calling on the presence of God, and God coming. But we do not control his coming and we do not control his action. And Jesus is not a genie in a lamp granting wishes. He is a good and just God. He is the good and just God. And he will do what is good and just. But what we might consider impossible or improbable, because it's more than we could do or control. For example, returning a wildly insane man to good health. And something that we might think is impossible or improbable because it is beyond our comprehending. Like, why would you defeat evil by sending a town's livelihood into the water? Probably not how you and I would have done it. That's something for you to have a think about in your life groups and around the table at home. Matt Woodley, who's written a book called The Folly of Prayer, I referenced last week, he tells this story. He says, I have four children and I pray for them every day. Uh, when our 20-year-old son uh, told me that he was going to spend a semester in Nairobi, Kenya, I prayed every day that God would keep him safe. Um, as the time came for his son to go, and when his son went off to, to this uh, semester in Nairobi, and his son Matthew told him that he was going to be vis visiting a slum, the slum that was known as one of the dangerous, most dangerous ones in the worst part of town. And Woodley says, I told him, be careful and take some photos. <laughs> Matthew responded to his dad by saying, I'm not going to be taking my camera or anything valuable, Dad. Uh, we've been told that if we have any obvious values, valuables on us, we're likely to be robbed and beaten. 
So Woodley says, I quickly prayed harder, calling on God to protect my son. And then on consideration, I called Matt and forbade him to go into the slum. Good luck forbidding a 20-year-old on the other side of the world. But anyway, there you go. And he said, Matthew said to me, Dad, I respect you, but I believe God has called me to serve him in Africa. And if I'm going to be here, I have to see it all, slums included. People live here, Dad. People live here, Dad. A man lived in a burial cave. People live here, Dad. Yes, they are poor and desperate, and yes, some of them are violent. But I have to do this. Imagine, says Woodley, I had called on God to protect my son and God had shown up and did something incomprehensible to me and something I was not at all comfortable with or in control of. He called my son into the dangerous slums and he called me, as dad, into the dangerous place of letting my son go. Jesus was asking my son to be a blessing in a God-forsaken place and I had to take the ride. You know, when we call on the name and presence of God, he will do things that we think are unwise, things we think are impossible because they are things that you and I can't comprehend or control. I do that. (laughs) And I think human beings, generally speaking, are likely to respond in two ways. Some of us might be scandalised, horrified, outraged, shocked, dismissive and 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 we might um, ask Jesus to leave or just walk away ourselves like that conversation at the beginning well it can't be miracles don't happen I'm off or like the people in the town who said Jesus go away stop being here stop doing stuff here go away from us so some of us will be scandalized and we will ask Jesus to leave or we will walk away ourselves but others of us might just choose to say this life is full of things I cannot explain or comprehend but it actually doesn't make them impossible. And we might learn to live with the unexpected. Matt Woodley finishes his story by saying, when we invoke the name and the presence of Jesus, he will come. And he says this, we will find ourselves in unlikely places with unlikely people living an uncommonly interesting and oftentimes uncomfortable life. Come, Lord Jesus, come. When we pray, calling on the name and presence of Jesus, we're doing three things. We are making space for God to defeat what only God can defeat. We are making space for God to liberate what only he can liberate. And we are making space for God to change us and our world in a way that only he can change us and our world. He graciously invites us to be part of him with that, but he never says, go do it without me. Come, Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray that prayer. We are making space and we better hang on for the ride. We're going to have some music playing and I just want to ask you to spend a little bit of time wondering, asking yourself, is there a place in your life where you need to be brave enough to pray, come Lord Jesus? And then go along for the ride.